Hello and welcome to Wine Blast, the podcast that brings wine to life with me, Susie Barry, and my husband, Peter Richards. Should we say we're both masters of wine? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, should we say we're married? Should you admit <laughs> to being married to me? Uh, I think on both counts, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's really important to say both. Okay, so we're married and we're both masters of wine. It would explain the quarrelling. It would. Uh, but we should know what we're talking about. Uh, yeah. And this is a very exciting moment mm. because this is our first ever podcast episode. Mm. So forgive us our slightly amateurish production values. Mm, speak for yourself. Mine, my lack of technological ability. But we can promise you the content will make up for it because in our first ever episode, we are jumping in at the deep end, tackling the big issue that dominated the early months of 2020, which was the devastating bushfires in Australia. Although the immediate impact of those fires has now faded, we want to ask the big question emerging from the embers. What's the future for Australian wine? Australia has never made more thrilling, delicious and fine wines across a range of styles. But is all this under threat? as climate change sets in and the country gets hotter, drier and more extreme. Well, we're going to find out because I've been chatting to some of Australia's top winemaking talent, both on the road down under and then more recently in London at the the biggest tasting of Australian wine outside the country. And it's fair to say this topic gets people, quite rightly, hot under the collar. The f***ing Prime Minister that (laughs) brought a lump of coal into the f***ing Parliament, you know, what do you want with that? And we'll be hearing a bit more from Troy Jones of Yarra Valley's Peyton and Jones in due course. But one of the best ways to show support is, of course, to buy and drink Australian wine. So we'll be heading into the kitchen with a couple of bottles of Australian wine, putting a beautiful Shiraz, which is my shout, up against a Great Valley Riesling from the Clare Valley, which uh, is your choice. It is indeed. Mm. All this alongside a delicious dish by superstar Australian chef Bill Granger, curried meatballs, to see which and who come up trumps. Then we'll be kicking off our highly educational wine A to Z segment exactly where it should start, at the beginning of the alphabet and the beginning of wine, because A is for alcohol. Indeed it is. All that and more in the time it takes to polish off a bottle of plonk. So we'd better get going. In early 2020, the bushfires in Australia saw millions of hectares of land go up in smoke, thousands of homes destroyed, the loss of an estimated half a billion animals, and with a tragic cost in human life as well. Climate scientists have long predicted worsening droughts and fires in Australia, and 2019 saw the country's highest mean temperature since records began in 1910 with rainfall 40% below the long-term average and the lowest since 1900. Now, conservative politicians in Australia have downplayed the risks of climate change, partly because the country's economy and exports are dominated by natural resource extraction, mainly coal and iron ore shipped to China. In all of this sits Australia's wine industry. With over 200 years of proud history and 146,000 hectares of vines. Australia's wine history has been something of a roller coaster. It encompasses historic sweet wines, affectionately known as stickies, via Kangarouge to Hunter Semillon, Blockbuster Shiraz, and mass market Chardonnay. These days, 
Australia is making finer wines than ever before, across a range of styles from fizz to fortified. But what's the future for wine in our driest inhabited continent? Can the country adapt and survive, or will it all go up in smoke? Wine has memorably been described as the canary in the coal mine for global warming, sensitive as the crop is to small variations in climate from vintage to vintage. Is this the moment the Australian wine canary singed its wings? By way of background context, I visited Australia in late 2018, well before the recent bushfires, and I talked climate change with Tom Carson, winemaker at Yabby Lake Vineyard, on a sunny summer's day in the Mornington Peninsula. This was what he had to say, and some of his words now sound eerily prescient. We talk about climate change and what I've seen in 25 years I've been making wine. Uh, We've seen a shift in harvest dates um, coming forward at least four weeks and up to six weeks. So based on my experience in the Yarra Valley and on the Mornington, you know, in the 90s in the Yarra Valley, we wouldn't start vintage until early to mid-March. We would pick, we'd have a very busy April and often first week of May. now, these days in the Yarra Valley, we would be starting mid-February, sometimes slightly earlier than that. Uh, the bulk of our vintage being late Feb, early March. And often, uh, I still live there, I still make wine there, often um, vintage is finished by the end of March with the Cabernet producers already having their Cabernet off. It's happened more times in the last five years. I think probably four out of the five times Cabernet's been off by the end of March. Um so we're certainly seeing effects of climate change. Um, what we've seen with climate change and the effects of, you know, sometimes El Nino is that um, bud burst hasn't moved too much. So the vines are coming out of winter and they're starting their growth at roughly the same time they were 20 years ago. Um, but we're getting a compression of the season. So the, the ripening is happening over a quicker period, which would make sense instead of, you know, ripening in early autumn. We're now ripening in the later part of summer. Um, And so we're seeing that compression of the vintage where um, vintage used to go over sort of eight weeks if you did a number of varieties. That's been compressed into, you know, four to five weeks. So it is causing problems when, you know, we used to pick Pinot Noir for two weeks and then we'd go into Shiraz and then we'd go into Cabernet. Well, now it's like, um, you know, Pinot's ready on Monday and by Friday the Shiraz is ready as well and then the next week the later varieties are coming in on those warmer, compressed years. So it's um, creating problems for wineries in terms of capacity, fermentation capacity, because they have to fit it all in over a shorter period of time. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of consequences to what we're seeing with climate change as well. And for the future then, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, hopefully I'll still be making wine in 20 years. Um, 20 years from now, that's what worries me because if it moves another four weeks ahead, I, I mean, I honestly can't see how it could, but I mean, it's possible. We probably wouldn't have accepted the fact that it could move six weeks in that shorter period of time, you know, back in the mid nineties. Um, what does it mean? It means you know, regions in Australia are going to have to reassess what they're growing, what varieties they're growing and where they're growing on them. 
You know, normally you pick the, the warm north-facing slopes. I mean, people are now in the Yarra Valley, they're in the upper Yarra, they're at 500 metres above sea level. They're openly happy to look at, you know, sites that face south, that southeast maybe, that are cooler than what we, you know, we wouldn't have accepted those as good vineyard sites 20 years ago. So, I mean, there were, there, there, things like that, I think, can counter it a little bit. But if the trend keeps going the way it is, I mean, there's probably nothing we can do about it. <laughs> Sobering words there from Yabby Lake's Tom Carson back in 2018. Fast forward to January 2020, as the bushfires still burned, I spoke to two winemakers at the Australia Day Tastings in London about the fires, climate change in general and the future of Australian wine in particular. First up is Pete Bentley from Pike and Joyce in the Adelaide Hills, who I managed to corner in a slightly noisy room. Hi, I'm uh, Pete Bentley from Piker Joyce Winery in the Adelaide Hills in uh, South Australia. Uh, the Adelaide Hills has been one of the uh, most affected uh, regions uh, in Australia from the bushfires. Approximately one third of Australia's, uh, sorry, one third of Adelaide Hills bushfires have uh, taken out uh, either vineyards or wineries or homes affected uh, in uh, in that area. So there's. Um, Quite a significant portion of the Adelaide Hills has, has uh, been terribly affected. A lot of lives, uh, livestock, and uh, vineyards have, have, uh, are under uh, enormous strain and pressure. And have you personally, your vineyard, been affected? No, we've we've been incredibly fortunate. Um, the Pike and Joyce Vineyard in Lenswood, um, the fires came within about a hundred yards of our vineyards and were able to be brought under control. Um, with the help of the local fire authorities, volunteers, and there was a bit of a wind change that came at the right time. Um, but some of our neighbours who were literally one or two kilometres away um, had you know, significant fires come through their vineyards. And how worried are you in the, in the short term? Obviously, things presumably are quietening down a bit now, but in the long term? Long term is a question that is really hard to answer. Um, we're, a, you know, we're a hot, dry continent. Um, Australia is made out of um, two thirds of Australia is desert, and uh, I don't think some people realise how dry it is as a, as a country. And we, um, but, but, but I mean, it's getting drier, isn't it? It you is. Know, if, you, if you look at um, statistics, even you yep. know, last 2019 was I think the average temperature was the highest it's ever been. The the rainfall was 40 percent lower than long term. Yep. I mean, you know. Politicians are denying climate change. Yes, they are. But it's clearly happening. Yeah, absolutely. We we are ruining the planet, to to uh, to put it politely. Um, you know, wherever you sit on the climate change scale of either denial or, or belief, uh, the reality is that things are changing. Um, our world is changing, and so we need to adapt and change with it, and and we need to make the um, necessary uh, changes, I guess, uh, both within our local regions, but also um, as a country. We need to, we need to be better. Um, what would at, you like to see happen? Um, oh, what would I like to see? I, I, that could take hours. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to see us lower our carbon footprint as a, as a country in general. Um, you know, I'd like us to become less... Um, uh, less reliant on fossil fuels and coal, and, and I'd like but to that's see. That's difficult, isn't it? If you look at you know the Australian yep. um, exports, seventy percent yep. are 
coal and iron ore, you know, how do you persuade a, a, a political leader to address climate change when you're reliant on those fossil fuel exports? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I don't think the current government will be persuaded, and it might take a long time. But the 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 future generation, the kids, will eventually win the battle. Um, we're supposed to be a smart country, um, and yet we don't lead the world in solar panels or wind farms. And there are countries um, in other parts of the world who don't have our natural resources when it comes to the sun, and yet uh, way ahead of us on, on some of these um, programs. So I find that amazing. I find we're supposed to be... One of the things I've heard Australia called... A, a de, you know, internally is that we're supposed to be a smart country. Um, I... I don't see that. I don't see that we're um, making enough grounds in alternative energies and alternative fuels and, um, you know, again, things like, like our, our winery is as every um, inch of our uh, roof of our winery is covered by solar panels. Um, you know, every every house in Australia, every, every building in Australia should be exactly the same. Um, and the government should be pouring money into that. Um, you're not going to change the coal fossil fuel industry overnight, but, but I'm not sure we're making any attempts at all. Do you think, um, I mean, given that Australia's moving in a wine style sense yep. towards a, a new wave of fresher, lighter, yep. uh, more natural, if you like, wines, and yet the country's getting hotter, is there an argument for vineyards having to be planted in the cooler areas, for yep. different varieties, for different techniques? Um, will vineyards have to be grubbed up and, and, and abandoned? I think there's obviously some areas have always been hotter than others and that's, that gets dealt with by things like canopy management. But there are a lot of areas where you just don't have water. So you're right. I, I think you'll see... Um, you know, places like Tasmania, um, which, is, you know, which have been affected by the fires as well, but, but people will head there to, to be planting certain varieties because that's, um, you know, going to be a, a cooler climate region than a lot of other places on mainland Australia. So, um, you know, yeah, you, I, think, I think there will have to be new plantings. We'll have to look at um, varieties that make sense um, because you're right, we are trying to make fresher, younger, more vibrant, wines um, and that makes it really hard when it's stinking hot. Pete Bentley there from Pike and Joyce. Our final contribution comes from Troy Jones of Peyton and Jones in the Yarra Valley after Susie asked him a leading question about climate change and the political scene. The f***ing Prime Minister that <laughs> brought a lump of coal into the f***ing Parliament, you know, what do you want with that? Like, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it, the, 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 you, we've got to be trying to look at this future and look and be sustainable with these sorts of things. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the conservative government that we've got at the moment that is still denying it, it'll only, if it's, anything will start to get done about it when everyone starts to vote with their feet, if you know what I mean. As far as us with agriculture and doing things like that, it's more about um, planting things, getting the right varieties that are there, things that, you know, we planted some Grenache, we planted Sangiovese at our very small um, little vineyard, but planning for those sorts of things for the future as well. So you are, you're already sort of future-proofing your own vineyards. Absolutely, and I think it's you have to because you've got to think as well that we're pretty young 
um, country still. So when you're talking about, say, um, Spain or France, or they've had generations to perfect what grows and where it grows. We're still we're still learning different areas and different things, and we've got such a big country as well. So when someone says something about Australian wine, it's like which part of Australia? Yeah, there's you know no, I mean? no such thing. No, no that's no. right. You know, so you look at a map of Australia, you can fit most of your most of Europe's major wine growing regions within that map. And you imagine speaking to someone in France that you know you're making something like Barolo. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's, it's true. It's true. But and, and I mean, going on to something like that, you mm. know, and Barolo is is a certain style of wine. Mm-hmm. Australia's definitely moving towards, and you're one of the new wave yep. yourselves at Peyton and Jones. You know, moving towards a, a lighter, fresher, yep. um, more natural, if you like, style of wine. How how does that fit with a country that's getting hotter and hotter? Look, that's just that's a great question. It is moving towards more different varieties and different uh, different things. Like whether you're, you're sourcing from different areas or, or doing different things. Where we are in the Yarra, we're really lucky. It's a very cool region, it's a reasonably high elevation for certain areas and things like that. So things are you know things are a bit you know longer ripening periods and things like that, they do happen. I guess it also goes to, you know, the way you make the wines. You know, we look at it from a new perspective where, you know, you've got, you tilt the hat to the old garden, you tilt the hat to tradition, but we really get to do a lot of thinking outside the box and doing things and the way we make wines, like even from, you've seen you've seen our wines and, you know, the you know, our entry-level stuff that we do with our VV series, which is light and bright, they're all from really warm areas, so it's about how you make the. And what are you doing to make them differently? I mean, what what do you have to do in the winery? Not much. Pick early. Keep it. Keep every. Keep alcohols down. And you know, traditional things that we've seen from say people that buy from that from a vineyard that we use, they'd be so different because it's just about how you do it. So you know, not trying to um, extract massive flavors and getting you know, we're not using any new oak when we're doing all these sorts of things. So intrinsically, getting lighter, brighter sort of things from that. This year we're trialling. We haven't bought them any yet. We're not going to do it, but you know we're trying to move towards. Um, we're going to have no oak with our winery whatsoever. You know, so all we're doing, so all of our wines at the moment, there's no new oak. We haven't been able to afford it. No. Um, <laughs> it's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive, so we didn't we didn't do it. But no, we um we don't. Ben and I don't like those sort of styles. So we're going to even we're going to move towards having absolute. They're only vessels at the moment, so there's no, they're not imparting any flavours or anything like that. So we're going to go down the road of you know locking things up in ceramic eggs and trying those sorts of those sorts of styles to get which again new wave stuff, correct, isn't it? Really, and re- yeah. retain that freshness. It's all trial and error. Yeah. We haven't done it, but yeah. you've seen what we've done in the past, and all of our you know I only know it's fourteen years now because it came up on my LinkedIn the other day. <laughs> um, but for the last thing, every year we try to do different things and using no soft minimal handling, trying to keep it, you know, a less is more approach. Okay, so let's start maybe with the bushfires. Um, My question would be, are we making a mountain out of a molehill here, given that they've only affected, you know, a tiny percentage, something like 1%? I think it's about about 1% of Australia's Australia's vineyard, which maybe that's it. Maybe, you know, um, it seems terrible at the time, and it is terrible at the time. I mean, people have lost, a small Mm. number of people Mm. have lost Everything. People have died. Um, people have died, and in, but in terms of a wine sense, mm. um, obviously that that's what we're in our very narrow, <laughs> narrow worldview, which is wine centric. Yeah, but you know, poor people who have built a vineyard and then you just lose the whole mm. thing. Uh, so I think in the immediate now, that one percent is important. Mm. It's not important to 
wine drinkers of Australian wine because you will still find Australian wine from 2020, but you'll find wine from other vintages that you know you can drink. So it's not about us not having wine to drink. I think the immediate problem is about people rebuilding their vineyards. And also, I suppose, for Australian growers, it's, it's the concern about the future, the worry about the future. You know, if you invest your, your life's work, no, it's not just about money. Wine's never just about money, is it? If you invest well, your rarely, heart and soul. I think it's rarely about money, <laughs> actually, really. Completely the opposite. Unless you're um, buying it. But you know, if you invest your heart and soul into a vineyard project and then you know at the back of your mind you're running the risk of either losing things to fire or having smoke taint affect your, your crop. And that's that's a big deal. I mean, I think we, we know that the smoke taint will affect or it's believed that smoke taint will affect some of this vintage. Yeah, so, so we should talk a little bit about smoke taint. So, so smoke taint is and can be an issue. It's been really well studied, mainly in Australia, I think, hasn't Definitely, it? Definitely, yeah. Um, and obviously there's proof that sometimes if you have big fires, big conflagrations and, and loads of smoke are coming over your vin, vin, vineyards at certain times before harvest, it can, that yeah. those flavours can get into the wine and I, spoil the wine. I think they say if it's, it's sort of fresh smoke and it hits at just that time and just before harvest, I think that's when it when it has the most impact. I mean, mm. I think we've, we've got to figure, haven't we, that Tyrrells and um, one of the big wineries in Australia are are mm. cutting 80% of their 2020 crop or have decided to um, due to smoke taint. Which, so, is, which is a massive loss. We should say, we, you know, we extend all our sympathies to them. But equally, you respect them too, because sometimes with smoke taint, the problem is, and I've seen this in Chile, we've seen it in California, some people are in denial and they don't want to deal with it. And they'll say, oh, it will be fine, we'll be fine. And the problem with smoke taint is the way the chemistry works. It doesn't necessarily show itself until... Uh, later on in the exactly bottle. time's gone past after fermentation and the wine spent a bit of time in the bottle and suddenly it can come out and your wine can just taste like ashes which you really don't want so but I, th- I think what what's what's really fascinating about the australian industry that i've felt in discussions that we've had or that i've had is that they they very much don't blame the government for being climate change deniers they take a much more well the people we've talked to take a much more kind of positive approach that they need to do something they need to they're pretty, adapt they're pretty positive people they're the very Aussies, positive they? don't you love them for that i mean yeah. good lord when i think how, how negative we are sometimes as a nation and you just think the aussies are just not like that they'll help their mates out but they also take this attitude that they need to be realistic and reassess so this means which grape varieties do we mm, plant in the future mm. maybe we plant varieties that suit a much hotter climate maybe we do try and move into the cooler regions like tasmania and so it's 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 really thinking what can we do and certainly um tackling carbon footprint and all that kind of thing to, to really have a positive uh, attitude to the future as opposed to oh my goodness you know this is somebody else's fault yeah but it's all it's all well and good and and this part of the problem with climate change is it's always someone else's fault even if we suddenly make our country the most carbon friendly country in the world uh, china is still gonna be polluting to you know to, to suit their purposes so but we've got to get beyond this haven't we and i think um pete was pete bentley there was really interesting you know we've we, the kids are winning the argument we've got to do something especially in a country like australia my word where sun is just you know the most mm. unbelievable resource there you need to harness that but it's crazy if yeah. you're not doing that on a on a widespread basis every home should have 
PVs, you know, the most efficient photovoltaics and solar panels possible. Yeah. Uh, here in England, we should use our wind and and and, and tidal power. Um, we should all we be should doing all much be doing more. It. And, and I think there's a lot to do it. in Australia. In that but sense. and I, I think I think the the interesting question that I think lies at the heart of the Australian wine industry at the moment is they are without doubt moving towards a totally different style of wine from in the past. Mm, mm. So it's much fresher and um, more sort of characterful but in a in a lighter brighter uh cleaner if you like way um well maybe not cleaner cleaner is maybe not the right word but just a fresher lighter approach to yeah, wine, which, which both is white and a red. great way to go but equally you worry but then uh, how do you do that exactly, if those cooler areas get warmer from yeah. climate change it's not going to be so easy i mean you know tom carson there talks about livelihoods he hopes he's still doing this in 20 years i mean that's that's a big deal you i know, think we, he might be he's a very good winemaker but well, he is know. i know he'll be making wine <laughs> he'll somewhere, be but, somewhere but it's right i mean there, there was a study recently wasn't there about um uh, researchers looking at wine sort of vineyards, the viability of vineyards, given a two degree rise in global temperatures and then a four degree rise. And they said with a two degree rise, about 56% loss of suitable land within current wine growing areas with a four percent, a four degree rise would mean yeah. about an 85% loss. Now they do say, look, you know, we can adapt, you know, we, we, the warmer it gets, you know, but equally well, we, the warmer it gets the less scope we have for adaptation and this is this is very real stuff given that two real. degrees seems to be a reasonable expectation yeah. in fact it might I mean, be slightly optimistic and four degrees i mean just in europe apparently 90 percent of spain and italy's vineyard 90 percent would be lost with I mean, four degree insane. lies Isn't that scary is, it's so scary but i think i think in the short term certainly and the medium term it is a case of adaptation and people mm. being really wise about what they plant so come on, where what's, they what's plant the, okay two questions firstly what's the wine industry doing now to adapt to climate change we've talked a little bit about that haven't we but also more importantly i think what how is the wine industry being ahead of the curve how is the wine industry helping solve this climate issue how is it reducing its carbon footprint how is it being responsible well i think a lot of the wine producers are some no, that's, a lot, that's unfair. A lot. There are a few. There yeah. are, and some are taking a lead. But you know, how many of them have solar solar panels on on, on their wineries? How many have water recycling, reuse, reduction programs? Um, we give them. I we think know more and more. That, to be fair to them, more and more, but there more could be done. I think I think wine needs to be a leader on this. You know, we've said wine's the canary in the coal mine. Well, fine, but that means we have responsibilities too, all all the way through the chain. It seems to be. You know, figures suggest that transport and packaging are by far and away the biggest contributors to carbon footprint of wine. So, no, to me, that, do we still need to, to to put wine in a glass in a, bottle? In a bottle, well, but you see, a glass bottle is recyclable. What I would say is not a heavy glass bottle. The amount of tastings we go to with these enormous heavy glass bottles, you don't need them. You need a glass bottle, and you need a light yeah. lighter weight. And I think as consumers, we've got to get used to the bigger heavier bottle is the better wine absolutely not We've got, to me i think we'd, we're going to see the end of the glass bottle quite soon except for very few fine wines i mean you know if you take the about 87 percent of wine drunk in the uk is under five pounds 50 that's pretty basic wine yeah so it doesn't need a does that need a glass bottle no really. you know and this is this well as long as the packaging is recycling yeah well this is another thing so what would we move to do we move to bag and box how recyclable is that do we move to cans that seems to be or do we move to reusing bottles filled from a big central tanker wine shipped in bulk potentially either way we all need to get on get on board with this because and, and we as wine drinkers as much as wine producers because we need to we need to change things we do after all that natter it's time for something to eat and drink so we're heading into the kitchen where we've got a wine showdown and a great meal lined up, haven't we? Oh, we have indeed. Yes, this is where things get tasty. 
every show we will be cooking up a... When, uh, when you say we, I think <laughs> it's probably fair to say you. I. I will yeah. be cooking up. That's that's absolutely <clears> right. <throat> I, I will be cooking up a delicious dish. I'll be washing up. Uh, you, really? <laughs> <laughs> that's a promise. And we'll be tasting some lovely wines alongside it. So in this Aussie episode, we just had to go with a fine Australian chef, mm. Bill Granger. Love him. He's one of our favourites. And his pork meatballs in curry sauce with rice are oh, amazing. So good. So wash it down. Um, we've raided our cellar, haven't we? Uh, and I've chosen the Clonakilla Hilltops Shiraz 2017, which I, we... Absolutely adore. We do. It's a lovely sort of peppery. It's, it's like a cross between the Northern Rhone and Australia. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a risky option here because you know, spicy dish with a red wine. It's, it can be. It can go either way, can't you, it? You've gone out there, haven't you? I have. But it's and it's also expensive. It's about twenty five quid or twenty five to thirty dollars. Now. I've gone for something a little bit cheaper, the Jim Barry Lodge Hill Dry Riesling 2017. It's around half the price of the Clonakiller. Mm. Uh, it's 10 to £13 pounds or 18 to $22. It's the value angle, you see, canny, canny. Cheap um, night out. <laughs> so, sorry for the chewing noises in this piece, uh, or if this does give you the munchies. So, it's a wintry Saturday evening. Uh, we've got the fire crackling away in the background. Uh, and we're sitting down to a delicious supper. We've got um, some wonderful meatballs. Uh, Susie, I think you should introduce these because, <laughs> to be fair, you were the one who cooked them. I, I am. So we, we um, as we've said already, it's a Bill Granger recipe. Uh, we love Bill Granger. He's an Australian chef. And I think every recipe I ever see of his, I think... I want to cook that. I want to eat it. So we chose tonight pork meatballs with a curry sauce. It's a Mazaman curry sauce. So it's a little bit challenging for wine, to be really honest. Anything that's got spice in it is always going to be a bit challenging. But it's very typically Australian, that kind of fusion, bit of curry, bit of coconut, pork meatballs. It's very um, very contemporary, I think, in many ways, and and very much a sort of a fusion dish, very typical of Bill Granger. So uh, we've got a couple of wines. I've chosen one. We're going to go head to head to see which of these wines, uh, they're both Australian wines, which works mm. with the dish. Well, we wanted to choose Australian wines, didn't we, without uh, overemphasising the point. We wanted to choose Australian wines because... Given we're talking about the bushfires at the moment, we the best way to support Australian growers is to buy and enjoy their wines, which have never been better. So we've got two brilliant ones here. We wanted to choose quite emblematic wines, didn't we, from Australia? So Definitely. we had a bit of a discussion <laughs> because, you know, there are quite we a few wines. We do we? discussions in, in inverting commas. Um, there are quite a few wines that Australia does really, really well these days. Styles, yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But we thought that Riesling... And, and Syrah or Shiraz had to be two of the most emblematic ones. Not not just in, in, in the short term, but in the long term. Australia are really going to need people more than ever to buy their wines. And there is no reason not to. I mean, these are fabulous wines at their best and even not at their very best. They are really good. I mean, Australia used to produce quite overblown, big, really rich, uh, if you like soupy kind of wines. Now, much more elegant, very food friendly. So I have gone for um, the Lodge Hill. It's a Jim Barry Riesling. It's between 10 and £12. Pounds. You can buy this um, right now 
on the high street and it is a lovely, lovely, limey... Well, we're going to taste it in a minute. And we expect it to be dry because a lot of uh, great Australian Riesling is dry yeah. typically, isn't As it? opposed to the German Rieslings that tend to be... A bit sweeter. Bit sweeter, yeah. Um, so I see your Riesling, but I have gone for something different and I've gone for a Shiraz, you know, nothing more Australian than a good hearty Shiraz, but this is a Shiraz with a difference. So this is the Clonakiller Hilltop Shiraz 2017. Now this is from the Canberra district, um, which is not very well known uh, between Melbourne and, and Sydney. Um, and Clonakiller are famous for making Shiraz, but it's so elegant and peppery so it's not a big blockbustery sweet rich ripe. it's more on the the savory spectrum exactly. isn't it so, and actually canberra is one of the districts that has been so badly affected so i think let, let's yeah. let's so right, it it's too much too much talk and there's not enough wine so i was going to say you know get your get your your um wine opener what's it called corkscrew that's the word <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness we don't need we it. haven't even had a, we haven't even opened <laughs> the blue wines yet. yet so uh we're going to get. We don't need one, do we? We don't need one. They're okay. both screw caps. So let's, let's Thank do you, this. Australia. Let's do the screw caps. I, I love screw caps. We love screw caps, don't oh. we? In this household, but that to be fair, so that tends easy. to be because we're often opening a lot of wines yeah, at the same time, yeah, which yeah. not everyone does, and not everyone loves screw caps. Some people like the theatre of the corkscrew, which is fair enough. But we like the corkscrew part. Oh, the, the simplicity, the, screw cap, partly the speed because, of a screw cap, and also because you're much less likely to have cork taint with. You with are. Screw you are. Cap. Okay, so let's. I'm going to have a little taste of this of, of my choice. Oh, now there's no better sound than that, is there? Um, your choice. Well, let's both so taste mine, your choice. Mine is very. Very. It's very pale. It's very limey. Elderflower. It's really aromatic. Loads of lime fruit. Mm. It looks beautiful. It looks very, very pale in the glass. It looks just what I expected to. It looks really refreshed. Is it fresh and dry and mm. zingy and whatnot? Mm. So that is. It's very dry. It's very much lime fruit. It's got a zestiness to it. Great acidity, really, you know, refreshing, brilliant. I like that a lot. That's really nice. It's 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 not an amazing wine, but for ten quid, you wouldn't expect it. No, but equally, I think also the only thing I would worry slightly with this is it may not be quite sweet enough. It may need a touch more sweetness I to worry go with, with the, this dish. With the curry sauce. But it's a lovely, refreshing, yeah, almost summery white. It's a very summery white, isn't it? Yeah, and really yeah. undervalued Australian okay. reasoning, I think, isn't it? So it's, it's good value. So we're moving over to our red, my red. It's all mine. I'll, I'll see whether I'll allow you some. It's quite deeply coloured, but not crazy Let's deeply coloured. Let's look at the, what's the alcohol on this. So this is, there is 14% oh. alcohol. So it's not... Super light and elegant. But just smell but, um, those yeah. aromas. They are so beautiful and perfect. They kind of leap out of the glass in a wonderful, sort of elegant way. That's just what I could so just sit here smelling this all, all day. But name. I don't want to do that because my food's getting cold. And I'll never get to taste it. Oh, you just need a bit of peace and quiet with a wine like that. It's so lovely. It's very, very, as, as you were saying, it's quite a savoury style. It's full of black pepper. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's what you know, lovely Syrah does. It's quite creamy as well. There's quite oh, a yeah, bit of it's a there. nice mix between yeah. richness and savour. So it's creamy, oaky. So just now, before we, before we tuck in, which one are we favouring? I don't know. I don't know. They're no, very no, different no, styles. No, no, let's, okay. let's, I let's, think the food, putting the food with the wine is going to yeah. be the acid so tested. That's going to be the way of distinguishing these two. So, so we're going to tuck into this. It looks such, such a rich um, brown sauce here, which we know is spicy, with a few nuts mm. on top and some rice. So let's oh, try both of these wines with this. Mm. How's the dish tasting? It's not too spicy. It's um, It's got a lovely sort of aromatic curry taste to it rather than a really spicy one. I think that's the Mazaman. Is that the Mazaman? Mazaman curry paste. What does Mazaman do exactly? Why is it so... Why do I like it so much? I don't know. I mean, it's a bit like tamarind. You love tamarind as well. It's, it sort of almost gives it that fruitiness. Mm. So there's a fruitiness to it um, as well as the spice. and, and a sort of So what happens there flavor. is... 
with the with the Riesling. The Riesling is just very refreshing and fruity and actually stands up to that brilliantly. I love that. That works okay. better than I expected, actually. Mm. Well, the, funnily enough, the, the wine almost becomes more fruity with the dish than, than dry, doesn't it? So now we're going to try the uh, red. That's, yeah, yeah. Really good, the, the Riesling. Oh, do you know what? That's delicious too. I would not have expected that to work so well. What do you think? It's really nice. Isn't it? Yeah. I would have expected the spice to slightly blow that up, to, to make the edges a bit yeah. harder, yeah. to make the alcohol stand out. Mm. Actually. Okay, what's your winner? Oh. Oh. I don't, gosh, wow. Because oh, usually when we have discussions like this, it's what would, what bottle would you end up drinking? Drinking, yeah. What would you yeah, reach yeah. for? Yeah. Now. I'd reach for both. I'm really honest. Um, the, the Riesling is very refreshing. The Syrah, the Shiraz is much more kind of sink into in an armchair. It's warming. It's sort of wintry. That's what we're doing. That's what we're here yeah. on a winter's night. But, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick my neck out and say, I think the Riesling is a better match for the dish. Well, we're going to have to disagree because I, I, <laughs> I, I'm really surprised at how well that red does with it. it. It's a sign of a classy red that it can go with spicy food, and it's so elegant. Uh, so, so, what do we do? We, what, we, we agree how do we to make disagree. it? No, we, we can't. That's rubbish. We drink them both. Right. All right. Fine. Glossing over the fact that remembering the word corkscrew should probably be a core skill for a master of wine. It should be, couldn't it? Although it's quite a short question, isn't it? What's the thing that opens the wine with the screwy round uh, coil? Anyway, shall I just move on? Carry on. (laughs) To be fair, and and in my defence, well, it's not in my defence, it's going on the attack. At one stage you said you appreciated the speed of screw caps. Who doesn't? It's a bit worrying, isn't it? That and sort of reaching for both bottles at the same time. Uh, Multitasking. Maybe fair to say we both have issues that we need to deal with. We apologise, however, for the disappointingly hung jury, but they mm, yeah. really both were, they were delicious. And yeah, remember, yeah. the best way Not that you can support Australian growers is by buying Australian wines. And they really never have been better. We'll agree on that as well, I think. Yeah, we probably will. Uh, recipe and wine details are in the show notes on our site, susieandpeter.com. Uh, we'll put out links on Instagram and Twitter as well. And now it's time for, drum roll. Drum roll. You're not going to do a drum roll? The A to Z. It's a drum roll. <laughs> it's like an earthquake. Uh, the A to Z of wine. Yes, this is our short, sharp blast of wine basics with a bit of a twist. And we're going to start at the beginning because A is for alcohol. It's a natural place to start because wine wouldn't exist were it not for alcohol. Fermentation is the natural process via which yeasts convert grape juice into wine. It's a magical thing. On one level, fermentation converts sugar into alcohol. At the same time, fermentation transforms the aromas and flavours of grape juice into wine. Although it doesn't sound great, one way to look at it is that sugar is yeast food, i.e. what goes in, and alcohol is yeast excrement, i.e. what comes out. In scientific terms, and as far as wine is concerned, alcohol is the common name for ethanol. Chemical formula C2H5OH. It's the way you sound. Um, The word alcohol comes to us, funnily enough, through the Arabic culture, it's thought. The term alcohol meant a fine powder to stain the eyelids. And this came to mean the finest, purest essence of a raw material. Now, because drinking alcohol is forbidden under strict Muslim law, wine itself was often distilled into pure ethanol to be used for other purposes. 
And ethanol was wine's pure essence. It's alcohol or alcohol. But what about us and drinking this stuff? Well, to some extent, alcohol is toxic for humans, hence hangovers, disease, and yes, sometimes even death in extreme cases. Mm. But in moderation, it's often considered to be relatively healthy, a benefit not lost on the ancients who commonly prescribed it as a medicine. It can also, of course, be used as a preservative, a solvent, a disinfectant, even engine fuel. So you don't want to get your uses mixed up. Although alcohol doesn't actually taste or smell of much, we humans seem to have evolved a taste for the stuff. Maybe some humans more than others. But in evolutionary terms, this may be because it has a high calorific value. So it's a useful energy source. In wine, it adds body, breadth, sort of smoothness and richness of flavour. But it's a delicate balance because if the alcohol level is too high in wine, it can taste sort of harsh or you literally sort of feel the burn in your throat. Alcohol levels in wine are usually stated as a percentage of the total volume. These vary from low, so 5.5, for example, in Moscato d'Asti, to high, which could be 19 to 21% in port and other fortified wines. Most wines tend to come in around 13 to 15%. Alcohol levels do seem to have risen in recent decades, though, and this may be down to climate change. The riper the grapes, the more sugar there is for the yeast to convert into alcohol. Or it could just be fashion for big red wines. Mind you, wines are often taxed by alcohol levels, so there is an incentive for producers not to go too crazy. These days, alcohol levels can be adjusted either up or down in the winery pretty efficiently. Uh, to raise alcohol levels, sugar is added before fermentation for the yeast to transform. Um, it's sometimes known as chaptalization. It's fairly common in cooler regions. And by contrast, there are various ways to reduce alcohol. Some are highly technical, like reverse osmosis or vacuum distillation, and some are both rudimentary and largely illegal, like what's known euphemistically as humidification, or colloquially as the Jesus pipe. In other words, putting water into wine. And finally, to finish on a high note, we are going to be featuring your questions. Yes, you, dear inquisitive listener, we want to help. So this is our agony aunt and uncle moment. First up is Mark in Australia, and he asked the following. Which wines would I keep and how do, how do I know which wines are the, the right ones to keep but not all of science just the sort of generic characteristics I'd look for. So Mark the first response is are you really sure you want to keep them uh, surely drinking up is is the right way forward that's what happens in our household. Moving on the right wines to keep well they're the kind of wines that you like the taste of once they've been kept and that totally depends on your taste. So really, you just need to try, experiment. Um, back to basics though, you asked about basic elements of wines. The best wines to keep are the ones that are made to last, and that is by no means all wines. Only certain wines improve over time. Um, what does that mean? Well, like a good building that lasts, it has to have the right sort of basic building blocks. That means wines with good acidity, uh, decent concentration, well proportioned, so nothing in excess. Uh, in red wines, good firm tannins help. Um, something with energy, something that tastes like a, a coiled spring when you drink it. Um, so what do we love? 
From our perspective, Susie and I, we love keeping champagne or great traditional methods, sparkling wines, because what happens with those wines is the bubbles soften, the wine sort of loses its fruity flavours and it gains flavours that are more nutty, mushroomy, briochey, toasty, and it's absolutely delicious. I mean, we've been lucky enough to try the wines from um, 1914 and, 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 and around. It's just, they're beautiful. They are wonderful things. We love them. Uh, fortified wines, if you like that, if you've got a taste for the strong stuff, things like Madeira keep forever and they are amazing and relative bargains as well. Uh, vintage port keeps well. Uh, best sweet wines are great to keep if you like that. So Tokai, Sautern, German Riesling. Um, we had a lovely 1969 Reef Salt Ombre for uh, a big birthday recently and it was just, just delicious. So in the middle, you've got the classic fine wines like Bordeaux, Burgundy, Piedmont, Chianti. The world, you know, is full of these wines. They are fantastic, wonderful to keep if you like them. As to how to keep your wines, that's for another show. And on that note, please send us in your questions via social media. You can use Insta, Susie and Peter, or Twitter at Wine Schools, or you can email us via our website. To join in the conversation, use hashtag WineBlast. Please do like, rate, subscribe. But for now, it's goodbye and cheers. <laughs>